actually got ahead of ourselves. We're not going to start in Jeremiah now. I don't know why, but I wanted to skip over Micah. So we're going to be in Micah. And the reason we're doing Micah, we're trying to do them in chronological order as best we can. And Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. And since we finished Isaiah, we're going to look at Micah. Uh, right after the book of Jonah. Uh, while you're turning there, just a little bit of background information. This is a short one, so I won't spend as much time doing background information. But Micah lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, which was the two tribes in the south. Uh, he lived at the same time Isaiah did. Uh, and he mentions some kings. Uh, if you look at verse 1 of Micah, he says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morshite, what he saw regarding Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he, he lists these kings, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. And these were kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, so we've got a pretty good idea when he was prophesying. And we do know for a fact that Isaiah was prophesying at the same time because Isaiah gave us some kings' names as well. Uh, Michael was very respected. Uh, in fact, King Hezekiah, if you're reading in Jeremiah, when we get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah mentions the fact that King Hezekiah actually responded positively to some of the preaching of the prophet Micah. Uh, and he was actually living in a time of religious revival. Uh, the, the southern kingdom was seeing all the stuff going on up north in Israel. And so there was kind of a, a, a revival going on in the southern kingdom. Uh, things were going a little bit better than they had been. And Micah's major message that he has to uh, both Israel, the northern kingdom, and their capital of Samaria, and Judah was social sins or injustice. Uh, he speaks vividly against some greedy nobles. They were the wealthy of the day who were taking advantage of the poor people. They were stealing their land. Uh, they were not taking care of widows. In fact, they would take property from widows. They would kick widows out of their home, uh, which is one of the things that God said you did not do. You take care of the oppressed, the, the widows and the orphans and these people were just greedy. Uh, they were money grubbers. And the social oppression is something that a lot of the prophets, but Micah especially, is calling for the people to, to work for justice because God is a God of justice. God, one of the things that, that absolutely angers God outside of idolatry, and there's some of that going on as well, but is to take advantage of the helpless. Uh, and the two, the two classes of people who were most at risk, like I said, were orphans and then widows, especially widows who did not have children or their children were grown and not doing what God instructed people to do to take care of their families. So that's, that's some of the things that you're going to see Micah discussing. There are actually a lot of parallels between what Micah has to say and what Isaiah has to say. Uh, and the fact that they lived at the same time, it's possible that they, their paths crossed and perhaps they knew each other because they both lived in the southern kingdom. And, and you can imagine, just like the local preachers here, we try to get together and encourage one another and pray for one another. It's not a stretch of the imagination to, to, to think of Isaiah and Micah doing that very thing. They're, they're preaching the same thing. They're worshiping the same God. They're dealing with the same issues. And because they live in the same area, it's a pretty good chance they knew each other, or at the very least, their paths crossed. Of all the rulers that you see mentioned, uh, Jotham and Hezekiah were good kings as far as the kings of Judah went. They did their very best to help the nation and to solve some of these problems of injustice. But you get this king named Ahaz who was absolutely wicked. Not only was, was he taking advantage of people, he 
single-handedly brought back uh, pagan worship and idolatry. And you can kind of look at Micah as being broken up into three uh, sermons, if you will. Chapter 1 and 2 is a specific message. Chapters 3, 4, and 5 is a second message. And then chapter 6 and 7 kind of sums everything up. And, and Michael really wastes no time. He jumps right in. Look at verse 2 if you have your Bibles there in chapter 1. Listen, all you peoples. Pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his place and coming to trample down the heights of the earth. Uh, when you see that word heights in the Old Testament, uh, some of your translations may say high places. This is place. This is a place where people would have gone and built uh, uh, altars to false gods. Uh, you can see about Asherah poles and things like that. For some reason, they would build them on these high places. A lot of that worship was tied into the movements of the stars and astrology. So they would be up in high places so they could be under the stars and worship the, these gods. So notice what it says. God is going to testify against the people. Uh, this is a legal term. God is going to be the witness. He's the judge as well. He's going to call himself as a witness to testify against the wicked. He's actually leaving his holy temple and coming down. And notice the language says he will trample these high places. He will trample these false gods. And because of the wickedness of the people, and at this time, especially in the northern kingdom, he has to bring judgment against them. And he, he names the capital cities here. Uh, verse 5, he talks about Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the houses of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? That's the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? It's kind of interesting and sad that one of the places where the pagan worship was going to infiltrate is the actual temple in Jerusalem. But you see that as the good kings die off and these wicked kings continue to move in, that even the temple is not safe from pagan worship. Now, in Samaria, it was always a blend. It was a blend of worshiping God and worshiping all these other things. And that even existed and survived up until Jesus' time. Remember, he's talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and they, they worshiped God on that mountain there in Samaria, but it was this blend of pagan false worship. But it, it's even going to infiltrate the southern tribe of Judah. It's even going to infiltrate the temple to the point where the temple in Jerusalem are eventually going to be destroyed as well. Micah is going to name 12 cities throughout this book and point out their sins. And the sins of the cities were polluting the entire nation. Uh, very relevant to the things we see going on in our world today. Uh, some of the things that we see going on in our world, not only do they affect uh, leaders, you see a lot of this stuff start to creep in and even affect the church, affect people who are calling themselves believers. So we need to be careful. We need to be on guard, lest we think that we are immune to this kind of stuff. This is God's holy people, and they've wandered so far away that even child sacrifice and this evil, bloody, pagan worship has infiltrated the worship of the one true God. Uh, so some of the sins that God was going to judge is this idolatry, the idea of these high places, that's where they would go worship these gods. Um, later on in chapter 5, verse 10, it talks about they worship the works of their own hands, and that's idols that they crafted out of wood and stone and that sort of thing. They're false gods. They're not real. Uh, and it's true, like I said, a lot of these prophets, the things they say are still very relevant to us today. 
Uh, now, we are not Israel. We are not Judah. Uh, we were not God's holy chosen people. But as Christians, as being part of the church, being part of spiritual Israel, we deal with some of these same things today. Uh, look at the materialism that is in our world today. People going after manufactured things, things that have been built with our hands, cars, clothes, houses, money, all this sort of stuff. That's not a new issue for us. That's an issue that people have been dealing with since the very beginning. Uh, chapter 2 there in verse 1, you see a second sin. It's the sin of covetousness. Uh, look at verse 1. It says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. These people are just greedy. They're all about money. And you see that sort of thing still going on today. Paul, when he was writing to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3, 5, he said to covet things is actually idolatry. The idea that you want something that doesn't belong to you. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's possessions. And when we're all about achieving worldly, material things, it's a type of idolatry. It's saying, I don't need God. I don't need God to provide for me. I can take care of these things myself. And it was running amok. Uh, Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. These people, not only did they covet things, not only did they want things, not only were they were greedy, they were willing to do anything they could to get them. Uh, notice it said they dream up wickedness, prepare evil plans on their beds. Before they even get out of bed, before they even go out into the world, they're laying in their beds thinking of how they can cheat someone, how they can get ahead. Uh, and unfortunately, not too much has changed since then. You still see that same sort of attitude, that same sort of thing going on in our world today. What is interesting is Micah's response. In Micah chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, this is the response Micah has, and we're kind of bouncing back and forth. He says, Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. For her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached my people's city gate as far as Jerusalem. He wept and he mourned. Uh, you see a lot of the prophets take it personal. Isaiah took it personal. Uh, in chapter 6, when he's standing there in the throne room of God, he's like, I'm ruined because I'm a man of sinful lips. And I'm a, a man of belongs to a people of sinful lips. Micah takes it personal. He doesn't just get angry about it. He doesn't just preach judgment. It literally breaks his heart. And he weeps and he mourns because all this wickedness going on around them, not only has it completely destroyed the northern kingdom, it's now creeping into the very city of God, Jerusalem, where God's temple is. And he warns them. He tells them that God's wrath is just around the corner. That they can continue to live the way they have been living, but if they don't repent that God's going to come, and the language he uses, he's going to trample everything. He's going to destroy everything. Now, it's going to happen to the northern kingdom first, but he's warning the southern kingdom that if you continue down this path, what you're going to see happen in the north, it's coming here as well. If you don't learn the lesson, if you don't learn from what's getting ready to happen up north, it's coming here. Unlike Jonah, when Jonah preached to the Ninevites, 
Remember what they did? They repented all the way up to the king. They don't listen to Micah. Uh, they don't want to hear it. In fact, they tell him to stop. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Quit your preaching. Hey, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? They thought that because they were God's chosen people, because of God's history with them. Remember, God had promised Abraham way back before any of this ever came into place that he was going to bless all nations through this offspring of Abraham. He promised Moses that he was going to deliver this people out and create a great nation. They went into the promised land, and he says, if you're faithful, you will possess this land forever. And all they heard was, you will possess this land forever. They kind of forgot about if you're faithful. They forgot that if they weren't faithful, that he told Moses all the way back in the wilderness that I'm going to destroy this group of people. In fact, he, he told Moses several times while they were still in the wilderness, he's like, I'm sick of them, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses pleaded for them. They think that they're untouchable. They think that because that they are Israel and they were God's chosen people, they can just do whatever they want. God will not destroy them. And they could not be more wrong. And they do not want to hear what Micah has to say. They gathered their own prophets. And it says that they were drunken and they were wicked and had no morals. But that shouldn't surprise us because Paul actually says in the end times people will gather together people that will tell them what? Exactly what they want to hear. If you listen to a lot of the main line denominations, a lot of these liberal denominations, their so-called preachers who are supposedly preaching the Bible are telling them that all the things that we see in this world that we know are sinful, that it's okay. God is love. God doesn't judge. You can do whatever you want. As I said, nothing has changed. Uh, the more, in fact, the more things change, it seems like the more they stay the same. So that's the first message. Judgment is going to come because you're with, they're wicked, they have strayed from God, and if they don't repent, destruction is coming. But the good news is, the second message is, even though there is going to be destruction, even though there's going to be judgment, there is a deliverer coming. He moves past the fact that they're slandering him. He moves past the fact that they are just gathering these false teachers. And he condemns the leaders of the land. The first seven verses of chapter 3 he, he points the finger. He's, he's brave. He really is. He calls out what is going on. I'll look at verse 5. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets, and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed. The diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. He's basically saying, you guys can do whatever you want. You continue to walk this path. God's going to destroy you. I'm not going to back down. You're not going to scare me. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm going to preach the word of God. And then the rest of chapter 3, it says, and God's going to come, and because you're treating his message the way you're treating it, 
this place is going to be destroyed. The Babylonians come in and they completely destroy Jerusalem. They completely destroy the temple and carry God's people off into captivity where they'll stay. But chapter 4, after the destruction, after they have been carried off, Micah says that the Lord promises. In the last days, look there in verse 1, chapter 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now it is true that God brings a faithful remnant out of captivity. King Cyrus, after the Persians have come in and taken over, he allows them to go back home. He allows them to rebuild Jerusalem. He allows them to rebuild the temple. But it's only a small handful of people that are carried away. But even then, after generations pass, by the time Jesus comes around, they're right back in the same mess. So the deliverer who's going to come and restore all things is not talking about the captives coming out of Babylon. That's part of it. Because we know from history that in 70 AD the Romans come in and they destroy Jerusalem again. They completely destroy the temple again. Now Jesus does come and he preaches salvation while he is here on earth. And he is the deliverer. Chapter 4 says one day there's going to be peace on earth and righteousness will reign. Mount Zion will become the capital of the world. There will be no more armies, no more weapons. And the only way that this is going to happen is this deliverer that's going to come. And this is not in reference to those coming out of exile because just look at the Gospels, the world Jesus came into. Was it filled with peace? Absolutely not. Was there still idolatry in the world when Jesus was born? Of course. So Micah is looking forward to something even beyond Jesus coming the first time. And one of the interesting things in chapter 5 I'm going to start reading with verse 1. But when you hear something familiar, just kind of make note of it. Daughter who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Bethlehem, Ephathra, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient of times. And then look at verse 4. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord. In the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. When Assyria invades our land. When it marches against our fortresses. We will rise against its seven shepherds. Even eight leaders of men. And he's prophesying the history that's going to take place from there until when Jesus is born. Jesus is the deliverer. It points out where he's actually going to be born. He's born in this little place in Bethlehem, which makes it even more amazing that they didn't recognize when Jesus was born that he was fulfilling all these prophecies. One of the interesting things about it is it's this very prophecy that caused those wise men from the east to come. They had been studying the Old Testament scriptures. They had been studying the prophets, and they saw here in Micah that this great king that was going to come and bring peace to the world was going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's why they showed up. Because pagans were able to recognize something in God's word when God's people were not able to. 
So the deliverer is coming. He's going to be bring peace. And, and unfortunately, we still live in a time where we're looking forward to that. We're still waiting for Christ to return and that to be fully promised. So the first message is there's going to be judgment. God will not allow the idolatry. He will not allow the sin to continue. God's going to come in and he's going to destroy things. But there is a deliverer coming. He's going to come and he's going to bring peace. And there's going to be no more sin. There's going to be no more warfare. And then so the last message he has here in chapter 6 and 7, because of the judgment that is coming, you can't escape it. You brought it on yourselves. God's wrath is coming, but it's temporary. He's going to bring a remnant back. They're going to reestablish Jerusalem. They're going to reestablish the temple, but it's just going to be a cycle. The same thing's going to happen again because we're not learning our lesson. But the good news is that there's somebody coming who's going to fix all this stuff. He's going to come. He's going to be the final king. He's going to be the one that puts an end to all this stuff. So his final message is we need to put our trust in God and get ready. Chapter 6 is actually at the scene of a courtroom. I like those kind of movies. Twelve Angry Men was one of my favorite movies. I like the courtroom scenes. I liked uh, what was going with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. A few good men. That, court, that whole courtroom scene that you can't handle. I like that kind of stuff. This is a courtroom scene. And if you're not God, God is the only one who's comfortable in this courtroom scene. God has actually called his people to court to be judged. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your complaint. He actually says, all right, you guys have problems with me. You don't want to trust me. You don't want to follow me. Do you have reasons why you have been disobedient? Let me hear it. I want to hear it. The interesting thing about this court, not only is God the prosecuting attorney, God's also the judge. But he has the people and he's putting them on trial. They've had excuse after excuse, reason after reason. He's like, well, here you go. Here's your opportunity. Here we are. What is your reason? State your case. And he's like, but before you do, let me explain something. I have a case against you. I have an issue with you. Verse 2, listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. This is a rhetorical question. He says, my people, what have I done to you? Or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. He's like, you don't want to follow me? I haven't been good to you? All right, tell me. Show me where I have not been faithful. Show me where I have not done everything that I promised. Speak up. I'm ready to hear it. So it's very similar to the conversation God and Job have at the end of Job, where Job is, Job is complaining, and all of a sudden God steps in and says, hold on just a minute. Where were you when I created all this? Verse 3, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify, tell me. Indeed. Can you see the sarcasm here? This is slightly sarcastic. God, because he's almighty, he's like, all right, you have issues with me? Tell me. Tell me all the bad things you've done. I only brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I only redeemed you from that place of slavery. I only sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what King Balak of Moab proposed? What Balaam of son of Beor answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgath? 
He's pointing out all these situations throughout their history where God had delivered them and God had kept his word. He's like, you remember all that stuff? Well, since you seem to have forgotten, let me remind you. And he gives them a laundry list of times that he has been faithful so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Can you imagine Micah having to preach this message to people? That they already don't like him. They're already wicked. He's already told them that God's going to come in and wipe out everything. And here he is and says, you have no excuse. You're going to stand before Almighty God. And you're going to fall on your knees in horror and in terror. Look at verse 6. What do we do about it? What's the proper response when God puts you on trial? What should we bring before the Lord when we come to bow down before God? Should we come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? And once again, this is a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. If it was just about doing proper worship, it would have been easy to follow God. And look at the answer. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. Now, does God want us to worship? Yes, of course he does. Does he want our worship to be proper? Of course he does. But what's more important to God than their worship? Because they're still worshiping God. The Pharisees of Jesus' day and the Sadducees, they were still worshiping God. But this is what God wants. For you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And they're found guilty because they have not done this. Chapter 7 just basically gives a rundown of how Israel has gotten to this place. How Israel has fallen Verse 2 there in chapter 7, Faithful people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among the people. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other with a net. Both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright is worse than a hedge of thorns. Once again, there's some sarcasm there. Even the good, the best people in the land are still tricking people. They're still hurting people. They're still taking advantage of people. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. He basically says nothing can save you. You can't rely on your friends. You can't rely on the leaders. You can't rely on yourself. Verse 7, though, is the answer. He says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Micah is speaking, and he laments the fact that the nation is so wicked, there's not a good person to be found. Think about the days of Noah, when God looked down. How bad was it when he looked down and saw, he's like, I'm going to kill every single one of them. But it was one man, Noah. So he said, no, I'm going to save you and your family and everybody else has to go. When they were in the wilderness, as Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, getting the covenant, they're down there making idols. And remember what God said? God says, all right, this is what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to kill all of them and start all over with you. Actually says it at least twice. He's like, I'm just going to get rid of them. They're, just, they're not going to listen. They're hard-headed. They're stubborn. And Moses says, well, how would that make you look, God? You promised. 
And your enemies will say, well, you deliver them just to destroy them. And God gave them grace. Bribery, bribery, injustice, dishonesty, and greed are the norm in the land in the days of Micah. And as I said when we started, not a whole lot has changed since then. It's really easy to look at some of these prophets and see our own land in here. We have to remember, he's talking to a specific group of people about a specific instance, but the application is still the same. There's going to be judgment for those who continue to live in sin. There's going to be judgment for those who refuse to repent. But the good news is that there's a deliverer. We're not waiting for him to come the first time. Jesus has already come. Jesus has already come and he's died and he's taken care of that problem. So we have a deliverer. What we are doing now is waiting for him to return and make peace. And the last thing as we close here, look at verse 18. This is the call to repentance. This is the call to the people. It's like, you have heard God's message. This is what you have to do. Who is a God like you? <coughs> Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. Even after all this, even after everything that's happened, he does not hold on to his anger forever. He delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob. Once again, it's bringing back all the promises he's ever made. And they're all fulfilled in Jesus. You'll show loyalty to Jacob. Faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Basically, the message then, and the message is still the same today. It's different context. God is the only one who can forgive sin. God is the only one that can bring us back. But he will show his mercy and love to sinners. He'll cast our sins into the depths of the sea because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, he did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. Micah told the people, if you just trust God, he'll get you through all this. We've got to go through the judgment. We've earned it, but he will get us through this. He will send his deliverer and bring salvation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the words of this prophet. Even though he was speaking to a group of people with a totally different situation, the truth is still the same today. Lord, if we continue in our sin, that there is judgment and there is wrath waiting, but it doesn't have to be. You have sent a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. And if we just put our faith and trust in Him and we believe Him, our sins are forgiven. We have the promise that one day He will return and He will be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Prince of Peace, and we will live in His presence forever. And we just thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.